Welcome to St. Paul's. So glad you're here. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you send your spirit now upon this place and upon every listening ear, that your spirit would fill us and that it would show us the face of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen. So today we come to the end of the book of Nehemiah and our three-month preaching series through it. And I knew it was going to end like this, but I didn't want it to end like this, and it doesn't feel like it should end like this. We've been preaching through Nehemiah since Easter, and we picked it because it's a story of a community rebuilding after a disaster. It has obvious resonances with our situation. And for the first 12 chapters, the story has a generally positive trend line. To refresh your memory, or if you're joining us for the first time, the story begins in 445 BC, more than four centuries before the time of Jesus. And, and Nehemiah is an Israelite who's holding high office in the imperial court of the king of Persia. He's an Israelite who is descended from exiles who were taken from Jerusalem more than 150 years earlier. And, and bad news has come from Jerusalem when the book opens. And the bad news that he gets is this. Some of the other Israelite exiles have returned and they had rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, but the wall is still in ruins. It keeps getting torn down by neighboring people and the city is vulnerable. And the, the city's vulnerability, the disrepair of the wall, is a sign that all is not right with God's covenant with the Israelite people, that the covenant is still broken. The covenant that God would be their God and, and they would be his people. And so Nehemiah goes into this intense period of prayer and he, he asks the king for resources to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. And the king says yes. And in a breathtakingly short period of time, Nehemiah leads a comprehensive restoration project. The wall goes up and there's this religious revival. The people remember the law, they confess their sins, they recommit themselves to God's law, they dedicate the city. And I don't want to go into too much preacher inside baseball stuff, but are you kidding me? Back to basics, honest about the past, serious about the future. They're celebrating God. The city's having a party. That will preach all day long. And for, for a people like us needing to rebuild, it's so good. Like in preacher terms, this is home run material. This is a slam dunk. This is some metaphor from hockey that I don't know because I'm from Southern California. And, and then we get to chapter 13, and everything goes wrong. And I didn't want it to end like this, and it doesn't feel like it should end like this. But what's happening here? Okay, well, most of the rebuilding in the previous 12 chapters happens quite quickly within Nehemiah's first year back in Jerusalem. But he stays there, uh, it tells us, for 12 years as the local governor. And we don't hear much about it, so we assume it goes pretty much okay. But after 12 years, in 433 BC, Nehemiah gets called back to Persia and he goes and everything promptly falls apart. What we read in Nehemiah 13 is what Nehemiah discovers after he returns to Jerusalem from Persia. And it's not clear how long he's been gone, but it seems like people might be kind of surprised he's back. They're acting like kids throwing a house party who didn't expect their parents back from vacation so soon. They've been acting out. And we heard excerpts from Nehemiah 13 read this morning. The chapter is just too long to read as a whole, but you, you get the idea, the arc of it. But if you have a Bible available, I, I encourage you to get it out because I'm going to need to make references to some verses that we didn't hear read. And what we see in this chapter 
is a people turning away from God. The horrible irony is how sincere their commitment was just two chapters back in Nehemiah 11. I preached on that a couple of weeks ago. The Israelites make a binding commitment. They make an oath. They call a curse on themselves if they break it to obey God's law. And that chapter ends with them swearing, swearing, we will not neglect the house of our God. And then Nehemiah leaves. And what do they do? Nehemiah 13, 11, they neglect the house of their God. What we see in Nehemiah 13, in fact, is the comprehensive and systematic violation of every promise the people had made back in Nehemiah 11. It'd be comical if it wasn't so sad. They promised to sustain the temple and its personnel. Verse 10, Nehemiah finds them neglecting the temple and its personnel. They promise not to work on the Sabbath. Verse 15, Nehemiah finds them working on the Sabbath. They promise not to buy from non-Israelites on the Sabbath. Verse 16, Nehemiah finds them buying from non-Israelites on the Sabbath. They promise not to marry among the neighboring peoples who didn't worship God. Verse 23, Nehemiah finds they've married among the people who don't worship God to the point that their children don't even know the language of the scriptures, can't hear God's law. And the coup de grace is in Nehemiah 13, 4 and following. And it's the detail that stands out to me the most because it's just so wildly outrageous. The people have promised to take care of the temple. And then at the start of chapter 13, we find that a priest has quietly let his buddy set up camp in one of the rooms. He's basically leased out the temple to a squatter. This is like if we reopened from the pandemic and you came back into the building and you discovered that I'd like rented one of the chapels to a cousin of mine or something. He's got like a cot next to the pews and a hot plate on the communion table and stacks a cup of noodles and craft dinner where the hymn books used to be. Literally every promise they made, the oath and the curse they took on, cross my heart and hope to die, they've broken, stick a needle in my eye. Now, Nehemiah moves through this wasteland of broken promises with the resolute decisiveness that we've gotten used to from this guy because he's the one who showed up in Jerusalem and less than two months later had the city wall restored even in the face of violent opposition. He's a guy who gets things done and here, faced with a comprehensive violation of God's law, he orders, threatens, punches, and hair pulls. That's in verse 25. He does all this to get them into line. And by the end things are mostly back into shape. The temple squatter's been kicked out. The Sabbath market's been shut down. The rules and regulations have been reimposed as the best he can. But it doesn't really feel like a win, does it? Because the people have been tested and they failed. As soon as Nehemiah turned his back, they fell away from God again, like they'd done over and over and over again. And Nehemiah can't be with them all the time. He's not going to live forever. Nehemiah can't single-handedly make the people stay faithful. And you can kind of tell that Nehemiah knows it's not a win. Because the whole of chapter 13 is punctuated with Nehemiah saying to God, Remember me, my God. Remember that I at least tried to do the right thing. This is a striking and poignant conclusion to a book that begins with Nehemiah reminding God of God's promises. In chapter 1, he said that God had, Nehemiah says, God, you said you'd restore a people who follow God's law, but the people have proven that they won't do that. Their memory is so short. When the book of Nehemiah begins, the people of Jerusalem are living in squalor and danger, and then along comes Nehemiah. In a single year, they see a wall rebuilt, a city restored, and a people made alive, and then they forget not just what God has done for them, but their own promises, their own responsibilities. And they fall into doing what's easiest, most pleasant, most convenient. 
Nehemiah begins by asking God to remember his promises to a people, and Nehemiah ends with him plaintively asking God not to forget him, at least, because the people seem to be a lost cause. It doesn't feel like it should end like this, and I didn't want it to end like this. But not just Nehemiah, because here in Nehemiah 13, we have actually also arrived in a very real way at the end of the Old Testament itself. The Old Testament is the Christian name for the the Hebrew scriptures, the sacred writings of the people of Israel, which Christians believe anticipate the arrival of Jesus as Messiah or Christ, the anointed one of Israel, the savior of the whole world. The Old Testament is a collection of books that records the history of the world from its creation as seen through God's chosen people, Israel, through whom he's promised to bless the world. And though Nehemiah is not the last book of the Old Testament in terms of the collection of books, that would be the writings of the prophet Malachi, who probably lived around the same time as Nehemiah, the things that happen in Nehemiah are, historically speaking, the last events that are recorded in the Old Testament, sometime between 433 and 423 B.C. And what that means is that what we've heard today is how it ends, the Old Testament. Think about this. The first event recorded in the Old Testament is Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. That's how the book begins, with everything, with the grandeur of possibility, with something, where before there was only nothing. And the last event recorded in the Old Testament is Nehemiah 13, 28 to 30. One of the sons of Joyada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. It's impossibly tragic, the arc between these two points. A story that begins in cosmic glory ends in a civil servant hanging on by a thread, a beleaguered bureaucrat who's preoccupied with family infighting and trying to get the temple spreadsheets in order. The story ends with one man trying to keep faith with God on behalf of his entire people and failing. One man trying to keep faith for the whole people. But Nehemiah is not that man. He can't do it. Remember me with favor, oh my God. The end. Now, as a community, we've been reading Nehemiah because it tells us the story of a people rebuilding after disaster. And we've been reading Nehemiah because we're starting fresh in a way as the pandemic hopefully recedes and we come back to whatever the new normal will be. And it would have been great It would have been great for us if Nehemiah just ended in chapter 12 and we could point and say, like, that's how you do it. Nehemiah, principles for rebuilding the godly way. But instead, we've got Nehemiah 13. And I knew it was going to end this way, and I didn't want it to end this way. But as discouraging as it is, I have to admit, it's actually the exact right way to end. Because Nehemiah's failure in the end is from a Christian perspective precisely the point of the book, which is humility. Here's one man trying in vain 
to keep faith with God on behalf of his people, but he can't do it. No one could, except, of course, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the one who only is now as prophetic promise in Nehemiah, who fulfilled the prophetic promise that hangs open, pregnant with possibility, even as the events of the Old Testament come to a close. Jesus, God became flesh. Jesus, who alone among any human who has ever lived or will ever live, perfectly kept God's law. Jesus, who gave himself for us so that we could stand before God the Father under the cover of Jesus' faithfulness rather than be exposed in our own infidelity. I am unrighteous. I am a sinner. Even if I'm a good citizen and pay my taxes, I still have a thousand thoughts a day, a thousand movements of my heart a day that violate the law of love, that put me before thee, that, that take me away from God. I'm way more like the Jerusalem, Jerusalemites than I, am like ne- than I am like Nehemiah. And I have the audacity to stand before God claiming the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not because I've done anything to earn it, but because Jesus has offered it freely. He has done what Nehemiah could not do and could never have done. He has established the spiritual temple. He has built the spiritual walls of Jerusalem, and he has restored a people to God. And this means that however we rebuild, whatever our community looks like after we come back, it is good to remember that Nehemiah's ultimate inability to rebuild because whether we're talking about rebuilding in our, in our families or in our church, at work, or at school, we should absolutely do our best. And we should absolutely work as hard as we can. And we should absolutely swing for the fences for God's sake. But we should do that knowing that God's plans have never depended on us getting it right. And nothing we build will last. Our job is simply to keep faith in our day. Because we don't know God's plans. It's God's work, not ours. It didn't start with us, and it won't end with us. The Apostle Paul, the greatest early Christian missionary, wrote, By by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Each one should build with care on the foundation already laid which is Jesus Christ. The construction on Yorkminster Cathedral in northern England began in 1220, and it continued for 252 years. One generation began it, another finished it, and in between there were generations upon generations of laborers who hadn't seen its beginning and knew they wouldn't see its completion, and yet they considered the work a worthy way to spend a life. We like to be starters, We like to be finishers. Ideally, we like to be both, to start a job and have the satisfaction of seeing it done, but we're not promised that satisfaction. The foundation was laid in Jesus Christ, and each generation of those who follow lays a single row of bricks, as it were. It's not our job to finish what's being built. It's our job to lay our row as faithfully and as true to plumb as we can. Our job is what's been given to us, which is to live each day in the way of Jesus for every day that God grants us. Because the only day we have is today, and tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. So now what? No, really, what now? You get up in the morning, and you say thank you 
and you give the day to God. And you make your way stumbling through the day, and maybe the day is hard, and maybe it's easy, and maybe the day is good, and maybe the day is bad, and night will come, and you'll say sorry for all the ways you forgot God, and you will say with Nehemiah, remember me with favor, my God, and you'll go to bed. And if by God's grace your eyes open on a new morning, you try again. Because the labor of life is yours, but the work is God's, and the Lord will complete in you what he has started. God's not finished with us yet, and that's good news. Amen.